I think people are surprised to learn that that way of understanding Revelation is a book of codes where you pick one verse from Revelation and one verse from Daniel and one verse from Ezekiel. I think people would be surprised to learn that that is a newer idea than the United States of America itself. John Nelson Darby is is the guy who is credited with sort of this this way of thinking. Um, he is in the late 1800s and is over in Great Britain. Mm. And so he actually travels here to the U.S. And prior to what's been called dispensationalism, prior to him bringing that over, that was not present anywhere. And it, John Nels- Nelson Darby kind of comes up with that. He comes over here. There's a system, there's a series of events that happen that um, I, I think the, the most major one was one of the major preachers at the time was Moody, after mm-hmm. whom today, like Moody Bible Institute is named yeah. after. John Nelson Darby heard him preach and afterward kind of went up to him and scolded him. So a lot of preachers have had this experience, but he scolded him <laughs> for being soft on prophecy. Uh-huh. He's like, I, I liked everything else you said. You just don't get prophecy right. And so after a few conversations, Moody was actually kind of convinced by his system. And then when you have a Bible Institute that's training guys that are going to go out into the rest of the country, you yeah. know, that is a, a that you know, that's how it spread, but it's really a relatively new way of, of thinking about how the texts, uh, what they're meant to be doing. Faith in the Fold, a podcast for ministry, biblical studies, and Christian living. I'm your host, Kevin Burr. Earlier today, I sat down with my friend Garrett Best. Garrett and I first met in 2010 when we were just starting our Masters of Divinity at Harding School of Theology in Memphis. We graduated together in 2014, and because of COVID, we ended up graduating together from Asbury Theological Seminary in 2021. These days, Garrett is the preaching minister for the Oliver Creek Church of Christ in Bartlett, Tennessee, a suburb of the greater Memphis area. Garrett recently defended his doctoral dissertation on the book of Revelation. Now, had you asked Garrett a couple of years ago if he thought he would become a budding scholar on the last book of the Bible, he would have certainly told you no way. I'll let you hear his reflections on this unexpected turn of events. In today's episode, Garrett and I talk about some of the recurring questions people tend to have about the book of Revelation. I hope our conversation will help demystify the last book of the Bible for you. If you enjoy the kinds of conversations we're having here on the podcast, would you be willing to like and subscribe to us and maybe share us with someone you think it might benefit from this? And as always, thank you so much for tuning in today. Well, Garrett, man, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. I am really excited to be able to talk Revelation with you. People are perennially interested in Revelation, and it's uh, I think it's it's probably been a few years since there's been some big end times prophecy you know, book or movie or something along those lines. I feel like we're overdue for one, and so maybe in the meantime, our, our interview can suffice for wetting people's appetite for... I was going to say, I think that's because we just lived it, didn't we? (laughs) That's true. People have had enough apocalyptic doom and gloom over 2020, and so now they're ready for for Beatitudes and, um, (laughs) and like, Psalms 23 and stuff like that. 
<laughs> yeah. But no, I, I'm excited about our conversation today because, like I said, people are always interested in Revelation. And um, it seems like there are some, there's some fairly uh, strong competing opinions about how to understand Revelation, how to make sense of it. And uh, Revelation is one of those books of the Bible where a lot of people um, come to church. If they have any kind of church background, a lot of folks will come to church and they'll have very, you know, unconcerned, you know, attitudes about a lot of things. But man, they know how what they feel about Revelation and they know who the Antichrist is. And they know they know all these other things. So we'll dig into that in just a second. But first, let me ask, um, just to help uh, help folks get to know you. Um, how long have you been in ministry? Uh, where'd you go to school? What, uh, what are you doing these days? Where, where are you these days? Help us get to know you as, uh, as well as I have known you for, uh, what are we coming up on now? Like 11 years or so? 11 years, yeah. 11 years, so. all right. Help us get to know uh, Garrett, uh, Garrett Best. So, uh, thanks for having me on and, and enjoy doing this with you. Um, Grew up in Alabama and went to college at Fried Hardeman University uh, and got a uh, degree in Bible and Spanish um, and then went over to Harding School of Theology where I first met you and we uh, worked on our MDivs uh, together. When I came over to Memphis, um, I really wanted a ministry job and just through a set of circumstances that the Lord was leading me to that I did not know at the time ended up at the Oliver Creek Church of Christ in Bartlett and worked there for five years while I was working on my MDiv. And then uh, after completing my MDiv, I was, I took a year to apply to PhD programs and got accepted to Asbury Theological Seminary where we were together again. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, and uh, so we went up to, uh, the Kentucky area, and I preached for the Nicholasville Church of Christ um, with you. Also uh, with for, me. <laughs> yes. um, and finished that program. And then after PhD, the Oliver Creek Church back here in Memphis called and said, do you want to come back? And so in 2019, we transitioned back here to work with them. So it's kind of hard to explain when people ask how long we've been at Oliver Creek. The answer is 11 years, but with a four-year hiatus. So, uh, like, yeah, I guess a total of eight years, but with a, a little bit of hiatus in there for for PhD work. Yeah. And so I, I did my dissertation and my PhD work on a particular issue that that happens in the Book of Revelation. Okay, well, very cool. Yeah, um, it uh, it has been funny how yeah, we just like we just happen to have. I think our first class at uh, Harding School of Theology together, uh, we're, we're sitting in the computer room in the back of the library. And then just, I, I think like, because we were largely on the same track and had largely the same academic interests in New Testament, we, I think we also had the same academic advisor, right? Alan Black. Yep. It's like, I, I think we averaged like one class a semester together for, <laughs> for the four yeah. years, basically. Yeah. Yep. So, that was uh, it. It was fun, and then um, I, I'm. I think I'm just like a couple years older than you. It, it almost felt like little brother tagging along when you showed up at Asbury the next. No kidding. <laughs> you showed up at Asbury the next year. <laughs> but anyway, oh Garrett, this is. Um, I, I'm excited to uh, to to get into Revelation with you. Um, 
you, I, I don't think that you were always setting out to be known for being a revelation guy, right? I mean, there's some folks who, who are known for that kind of thing. Rick Oster comes to mind for those in the, in circles and churches of Christ, you might know Rick Oster. Um, and for others who, uh, who know New Testament academics, there are a couple of other names that, uh, that come up pretty regularly, but I don't think that was your plan, right? How did you, how did you stumble upon the book of Revelation? Yeah. If you would have told me just a few years ago that I'm doing a podcast, helping people understand Revelation, I would have just <laughs> been as shocked as anybody else. Uh, no, I grew up in a context where we just stayed away from Revelation as much as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew that our church did not believe that Revelation was a prediction of end times and talking about presidential candidates and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, I did not know what to think about what it actually was. And so we just kind of had a don't ask, don't tell, like we'll oh. just let that, we'll, we'll let that book kind of be the awkward uh, end of our Christian canon that we, the, the uncle at the Christmas party that we never actually talk about. Um, and so I did not ever have a class in Revelation at Fried Hardeman. And that was my, it's not that they didn't offer it. I just never took it. Yeah. I didn't think that there was anything relevant or that I would ever be able to comprehend what was going on um, in my master's program, did not take a class, not that they were not offered. I just had no interest, got to my PhD program and there were limited offerings in the seminars that they would offer. And I went to go register for courses one time and I said, you have got to be kidding me. <laughs> this is what I've got. <laughs> the only class that's available for a PhD seminar is the book I have never, I don't even know I had read through the whole thing. Um, I mean, I just thought, wow, you got to be kidding me. And then mm-hmm. I wrote a paper and the professor said, you should keep going with this um, with what you're doing here in this paper and mm-hmm. ended up in a dissertation. And so um, I've really had to spend a lot of years actually now, a few, several years catching up with what I had spent my whole life avoiding for sure. Oh, fascinating. That uh, it almost feels like some kind of uh, some kind of analogy for, for life or spiritual growth <laughs> or something like that. Well, but, but in a more, in a more like trying to discern what God was doing in that um, looking back, uh, at the time, I was like, you've got to be kidding me. But now that I sit after we've gone through this pandemic and probably in my own church life, more people are like our masks, you know, the the mark of the beast and, yeah, and all those things. I'm, I'm sitting here realizing that, that this was not a random occurrence. I do feel like the Lord was kind of preparing me for a moment such as this. Yeah. This was your Esther moment. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Well, that's great. It's uh, it's so funny too that you mentioned that you just kind of stumbled upon this uh, this notion, uh, this particular issue in how to understand what's going on in the Book of Revelation, with a with a class in a class that you didn't really expect was going to have that uh, that significant of an impact on your life or your or your academic career. Similar kind of thing happened to me. Uh, I wrote a paper for that same professor, it was Craig Keener. And, uh, you know, it's just, it's kind of an interesting idea. And there was one like paragraph that Keen was like, Hey, this is an interesting idea. I didn't think much about it. I was expecting to dissertate in something else. I had a different academic advisor and you and I ended up switching, uh, uh, uh not really switching academic advisors. You meaning I had yours and you had mine and vice versa, but we ended up changing academic advisors in the dissertation phase. You wrote this paper for revelation. And then 
when did you first get really excited feedback from Fred Long about it? Um, well, it, it had to do with the Greek grammar. Um, and so it had to do with this grammatical issue that was happening uh, in Revelation. And he um, at Asbury was kind of the grammar and syntax, you know, yeah. guru. And so I just thought that the project actually fit a little bit more with his own research interests. Yeah. Yeah. He, um, it, it was actually, a, I, I think I was there the day that you presented the paper in seminar in the afternoon, like weekly seminar for PhD students. I remember him coming up to you pretty excited. It's like, Hey, I, I've got a whole list of ideas that I, I think you could run with this. It, it was kind of like he was, he was wooing you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it, it was, it felt that way. And so he was just a wonderful advisor and mentor and I, I don't regret that at all. And it was a really enjoyable process actually. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, so what piqued your interest in revelation then was largely this kind of strange issue with the grammar that yeah. you, uh, that you noticed uh, before we lose the dozen or so people who are kind enough to watch this far <laughs> into the video, um, <clears throat> give us sort of the give us sort of the churchgoers version of sure, what sure. you were trying to do with this project. So, anytime you open a commentary on a book of the Bible, like one of the first things that they're going to discuss is like the text, the, the the Greek text, and that sort of thing. And because I literally knew nothing about Revelation, I opened a commentary and the first thing was the Greek text. And the first thing it said about the Greek text was um, the, the kind of famous quote from R.H. Charles, who had a major commentary on Revelation in the early 1900s, says, the Greek of Revelation is the worst Greek in a document of comparable size from the age of Homer down through the Middle Ages. <laughs> And I just thought, what, in the, what in the world? What um, an opening line! <laughs> yeah, um, for the people sitting in the pews, it's like uh, nouns and adjectives don't agree with one another. So it, it's sort of like I grew up in Alabama, but like y'all be silly, you know. It just it um, it, it it it's very grammatically incorrect in I think many many places. Us, you and I as Southerners appreciate how how it can sound like it's, it's not technically correct in no, terms of grammar, yeah. not technically correct, but it, it also doesn't sound super strange to us. Cause you know, ain't and y'all be and stuff like that. Yeah. We, right. we get that. But um, the, the dominant theory for much of the 20th century was that John is a primary Hebrew Aramaic speaker. And so he's just struggling to write in a second language, mm -hmm. just like anyone would. But when I looked at revelation, I just didn't see that. Um, and that seemed to almost be just sort of the accepted view, um, with, with the exception of some other proposals. I just thought it, he was too sophisticated. And for every construction that seems irregular, there's a parallel construction in the exact same phrase, uh, correct elsewhere. So yeah. what was going on there and where I landed was um, in his prophetic exemplar and the prophet that he thinks is, you know, his really prophetic hero that he's imitating. Yeah. His, uh, his kind of model, right. His model is yeah. Ezekiel mm -hmm. and um, Ezekiel in his opening vision has the worst Hebrew in the Hebrew Bible, <laughs> all of these grammatical irregularities. And so what I attempted to show uh, in my dissertation with that was that the grammatical irregularities in revelation were actually caused by this really cool 
visionary, sophisticated interaction with um, Ezekiel and his kind of prophetic model for what he was doing. Yeah, and and, uh, John especially draws a lot from these uh, these Old Testament prophetic models, Ezekiel, Isaiah, especially Daniel. Man, that's a, that, that's a neat idea. I remember when you presented it's like, huh, I would have not gone there. But you're absolutely right. He he John is not dumb. He knows how to write uh, you know properly because he knows how to he knows how to make his nouns and uh, you know subjects agree and his uh, adjectives and stuff agree according to grammar. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So I think that what I have argued fits more with kind of the character of the whole the whole thing. So I like what I did. I don't know if others will, but I was happy with it. Well, and your dissertation committee liked what you did and that's what counts, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 So <clears throat> because of your interest in revelation, and this was something that I really appreciated um, that you would do when we worked together up, uh, up at Nicholasville in central Kentucky, when you were, when you knew that you had a class coming up or something, you would do your due diligence and really work hard on understanding, okay, if I'm going to be taking a class on this book of the Bible for school, one way to really help me dig into the text is to, is to learn it well enough to teach it at church. And you did that, I, I know, with Revelation, I think also with Hebrews also, which is, which is a tough book to work through for a church audience. Hebrews 11 is fun, right? Faith Hall of Fame. Uh, there's some good stuff in Hebrews 12, but the rest of the book, it's kind of a slugfest of theology and you know Christology and stuff like that. But you started teaching Revelation and have had a couple of opportunities to teach it since then. What what kinds of what common preconceptions, uh, ideas, maybe misconceptions have you noticed that people tend to bring? To the book of Revelation when they are hearing it in a church uh, church context? Sure. I mean, it, it's really um, polarizing. So uh, my context is Churches of Christ, and that's mostly the groups that I'm uh, talking with. I would say a dominant kind of position is the one that I grew up with, which is the it's too difficult. It's too crazy. There is no relevance for this. I mean, I grew up knowing that the message was uh, for, for the seven churches and the people in the past. And therefore I concluded there was no relevance for me. Interesting. Uh, and so I think a lot of people have a default uh, position of just, I just staying away from this. It's too yeah. hard. It's too confusing. It's too crazy. Um, but then on the other hand, someone actually just told me the other day, they said, if anybody ever comes up to you at church and says, I really want to teach the book of revelation, never let that person <laughs> Um, and the reason, I know the type. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So then the opposite end of the spectrum is that uh, Revelation is this basically book of codes that sort of tells you how to predict the end of the world mm-hmm. and sort of the last times. And uh, it you might call it pre- reading Revelation like it's predictive prophecy of the future. Mm-hmm. And so it really becomes almost this like book of secrets where you need the 1 a.m televangelist to decode that this passage is about China and Russia and sort of this modern day thing that's happening right now, or Israel and Palestine shooting rockets at each other. You really see. um, And 
So while in our pocket of churches, there may be more avoidance, that other strand of the left behind and the end times and the book of codes, I mean, we've had American presidents who in presidential candidates who in national debates have talked about things like Armageddon. And, and so, I mean, it has really that one in terms of American politics and American evangelicalism and American life, that end times view has really, um, taken hold. And I, I don't know if you want me to comment on that, but I'll just say one thing. I think people are surprised to learn that that way of understanding revelation is a book of codes where you pick one verse from revelation and one verse from Daniel and one verse from Ezekiel. And somehow that makes some kind of system in the Schofield Bible that people might, I think people would be surprised to learn that that is a newer idea than the United States of America itself. <laughs> yeah, dig into that a little bit. Folks might also not know the particular study Bible you're referring to, the Schofield Bible, S-C-O field, Schofield. Yeah. Uh, would you mind digging into that just a little bit sure. for us? I mean, I grew up in a house where like we didn't believe in that, but we still had a Schofield Bible. I think everybody <laughs> kind of had a Schofield Bible. Yeah. And I think a lot of people would be familiar with that. But um, John Nelson Darby is is the guy who's credited with sort of this this way of thinking. Um, he is in the late 1800s and um, is over in Great Britain. Mm-hmm. And so he actually travels here to the U.S. And prior to this kind of um, what's been called dispensationalism or um, prior to him bringing that over, that was not present anywhere. And it John Nelson Darby kind of comes up with that. He comes over here. There's a system. There's a series of events that happen that um, I, I think the, the most major one was one of the major preachers at the time was Moody, after mm-hmm. whom today, like Moody Bible Institute is named yeah. after. And um, John Nelson Darby heard him preach and uh, afterward kind of went up to him and scolded him. So a lot of preachers have had this experience, but he scolded him <laughs> for being soft on prophecy. Uh-huh. It's like, I, I liked everything else you said. You just don't get prophecy right. And so after a few conversations, Moody was actually kind of convinced by his system. And then when you have a Bible Institute that's training guys that are going to go out into the rest of the country, you yeah. know, that is a, a that, you know, that's how it spread. But it's really a relatively new. Um, it's really a relatively new way of, of thinking about how the texts, uh, what they're meant to be doing. Yeah. And I would also say it's not an ancient way of, <laughs> right, yeah. of, of doing this. So, yeah. yeah. So if you were to go back, say, to you know, the group of folks known as the Apostolic Fathers or, um, or later patristics, these guys would present interpretations of Revelation very different from what Darby presented and eventually was popularized by folks coming out of the Moody Bible Institute. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the thing about Revelation is it, it presents itself as being a message delivered to seven churches in Asia Minor. Mm-hmm. Um, and the crazy thing that happens with this way of reading that John Nelson Darby brought over is we then interpret Revelation as if it were written to 21st century Western America mm-hmm. so that everything in revelation the fulfillment of those just also happened to be the geopolitical foes of the united states of america so mm-hmm. it's russia and china and yeah and all these things and so um I, the litmus test i like to give when i present on revelation is 
if your interpretation of Revelation would not make sense to someone sitting in a pew in Smyrna in the first century, it is not correct. And so I'm sorry to inform you, but no one would have been able to understand that the beast was Barack Obama or Donald Trump. Right. Um, that, you know, that, that just is not a right way to read Revelation. And when you look at the history, it's actually a very recent way. And I, I'm not, um, you know, just because Nicolas Cage has thrown all of his cinematic um, weight behind <laughs> a new movie of the Left Behind series and just because the Left Behind series sells so popularly in our mm -hmm. culture, if you really look at what is behind that series, it's such a new... And by the way, you know, the sorry, I'm, I'm going off on a tangent here, but sorry. The, the, the series like Left Behind was based on like late great planet Earth and Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins and those guys. Yeah. But when they wrote that, they were writing as if all the prophecies in, in the Bible and in Revelation were being fulfilled during the period of the Cold War. And so mm -hmm. Russia, well, either that did or didn't happen. And it appears like it didn't happen. And so the goalpost just keeps moving. Like yeah. it's, it's always a different nation or fulfillment or, or whatever, but people keep staying within the system. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and that, that I think it, it should give us a warning that this is a problematic way to try to understand these texts. Yeah. It reminds me of a certain Parks and Rec episode where it's supposed to be the end of the world and it, it, it's not happening, right? Ben Weir's yeah. house, a yeah. fellow Asbury student would appreciate this. And no, it doesn't happen. And so the guy comes back and is like, oh, I actually need to reserve the park for six months later because I misread something. So right. you know, something to be said for, for all that. Um, one of the things that you mentioned is, you know, this strange stuff that we see in Revelation and, and really elsewhere. It usually ends up getting to be read as code for, you know, I, geopolitical enemies or you know a, a other other nation states in the 21st century um and a lot of that kind of thinking is rooted in being able to creatively reinterpret reinterpret some of these strange and fantastic images that we see in the book of revelation uh when the when the book of revelation uses the word beast i think a better way to understand that would be something like monster because I mean, especially if you actually were to draw out, you know, this multi-headed thing with horns and blood and stuff like that, it's monsters. These kinds of monstrous creatures, because it's not precisely obvious to us what it is, it is kind of open for interpretation. This kind of symbolism is, uh, is tough for some folks to deal with. One thing that I really liked about when you taught uh, Revelation back in Kentucky was that you had an opening illustration that you used, that this was your own creation, right? Like you didn't, you didn't find this or dig this up anywhere. This was your own creation. And you were going to use this as a way of helping people get a sense of the symbolism or, or, or what's going on with, with these fantastic images. Uh, tell us a little bit about this uh, this opening uh, this opening illustration that you wrote, and and if you wouldn't mind reading it for us, please. Sure. Uh, the reason I did that, I'll just give a brief intro to why I did it, is um, because Revelation is written to these seven churches. Um, the people on the ground are familiar with their own world because they're living in it. 
Yeah. But because we're not familiar with their world, a lot of it becomes lost on us. Mm -hmm. Another thing that I think handicaps us when we come to Revelation is that in our Bible, we really only have one and a half books that what we would call apocalypses. So the second half of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, which is really important for Revelation, and then the book of Revelation. And so we might be led to think that Revelation is completely unique. It's insane. It's crazy. But when we go back to the ancient world, there are dozens of them. Yeah. And they've been around for hundreds of years. And so people know what to do with these. They, they understand how to read this kind of symbolism. Plus, they know the symbolism on the ground. So I thought if someone wrote uh, kind of this kind of symbolism for somebody today, what would it sound like? And actually what I did was I tried to take symbolism people could recognize in our context, but also take symbolism that's really reminiscent of the kinds of things that we see in Revelation. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a really fun assignment to go through this and then just kind of spend some time unpacking what people hear. So anyway, here's just a little paragraph that I wrote. I heard a loud voice and I looked and behold, I saw a rider coming from the north on a white horse. He announced to a man clothed in red, white, and blue, standing in front of a giant white house, and said, Behold, for your sins, I'm bringing upon you earthquakes, wildfires, floods, and tornadoes for your participation in the selling and buying of human souls. You have allowed the beast with three heads to plunder the nations. And behold, after 1776 days, I saw a bald eagle falling from the sky, and behold, then I heard the voice of 50 angels crying out and worship to God and the Lamb. Oh, beautiful for spacious skies, for amber waves of grain, for purple mountain majesties above the fruited plains. Oh, God, oh, God, please shed your grace on us and crown us all with crowns from sea to shining sea. Yeah, that's good. So I go through that and then I have people like, what do you see? And people say, oh, you know, a rider coming from the north on a white horse. Like this sounds like north and south. You know, mm -hmm. it sounds like it's kind of Civil War stuff. And uh, in one class, somebody was even like, did you know that Robert E. Lee used to ride on a white horse? And I did not know that. I actually <laughs> went and looked that up and was like, whoa, you know, did not know that. Um, yeah. I saw a man in front of a red, white and blue, you know, standing in front of a giant white house. It's like everybody yeah. recognizes that. Well, and especially the fact that you you gave the colors in that particular order, red, white, and blue. That's right. th that's almost an American idiom. If you're going to mention those three colors, it sounds weird to do it any other way. Absolutely. Specifically mentioned red, white, and blue. Yeah. Right. And then the, the, the sin is actually uh, buying and selling human souls, mm -hmm. which would obviously be the, you know, slavery in America. But what people may not recognize is in chapter 18 of Revelation, one of the things that Rome is judged for is that exact phrase, buying and selling of human souls, the slave yeah. trade. And, that, and, that, and that's why you worded it that way. Absolutely. In this, because it's, it's, a, it's alluding to when, when, I, when I first made that connection, I got chills. I was like, oh, man, that's, that's really good. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. And then the punishments for that sin are earthquakes, wildfires, floods, and tornadoes, which those are things that are very contextual to our country. Mm -hmm. um, and if you look at Revelation, I actually looked it up earlier. In Revelation, the word earthquake shows sounds. If you lived in Asia Minor, devastating earthquakes was just a part of your existence. Yeah. So um, 
you know, that you're going to perk up when you hear earthquakes. Well, for us, there's going to be people that perk up when they hear wildfires. You know, that's been a major thing we've had to deal with in the last um, it's 1776 days. Obviously, our number 1776, you know, is really yeah. important. Bald eagle falling from the sky it symbolizes judgment. But the one I wanted to say is um, you hear the 50 angels, which represent the 50 states, uh, crying out. And they, they take a song that we all know, Oh, Beautiful for Spacious Skies. But actually, if you notice in what I wrote, there's a subversion of the song. So where, where it says, beautiful for spacious skies, for purple mountains, majesties above the fruited plains, we would say, America, America. Yeah. But instead of America, I've substituted America with, oh God, oh God, please shed your grace on me. And yeah. I actually think that in Revelation, when you read Revelation, there's more than a dozen hymns. And oh, I don't know this. I don't know this for sure. What what we do know was in Asia Minor, they had a professional choir called the Hymnodes, mm-hmm. who we even have inscriptions about like what they were paid when they sang. So I mean, mm-hmm. this was like this professional choir who were who were tasked to sing songs of worship to the emperor. And interesting. Were they based in Ephesus? They were, yeah. And they traveled around whenever there were major festivals. They would travel around and sing songs to the emperor, and they were paid to do that. Um, and I don't know this for sure. And I don't know how we would know unless we discovered what some of those songs were, but I imagine, and I, I just would like to think that one of those songs was like a sevenfold praise of the emperor. Like he has power and strength and might and one, you know, well, revelation takes that hymn and says, no, that's not the emperor. That's yeah. the lamb. That's cool. You know? And so what I did in this illustration was try to say, I even think that may be going on with the hymns in Revelation. They're subverting the praise that people offer to the false gods of the world. And they're saying, actually, you know, this needs to be sung about Christ the Lamb. Yeah, man, that's cool. I, I don't know that I had heard you say that before, or if you had, it's been like three or four years, <laughs> three or four years. But I like that idea. Yeah, um, the the more one is familiar with the kinds of things that were said about Caesar Augustus or some of the other emperors as well, especially some of the later emperors in the first century. Um, it's fascinating how many of those titles, many of those accolades given to the emperors are also things that are said about Jesus. And, and I can't help but read those and thinking, man, you know, I bet these guys who are writing this, they're poking, they're poking at the emperor just enough. They're doing it in a coded way. So it's, uh, so it's not super obvious, but it is subversive. Yeah. Uh, so that, that, that definitely makes sense, you know, with this going on in revelation. Yeah. Uh, so, okay. So trying to figure out codes and things in revelation, um, <clears throat> you know where I'm going with this. What is the deal? What is the deal with the mark of the beast? Give us, uh, you know, why, why, why is it perennially somebody new? And what do you think the most likely candidate is for the mark of the beast actually referring to a a particular person? Sure. Um, I think this is like, if anybody knows anything about revelation, it's like, tell me about the mark of the beast. And I think people, it's like, um, Anytime they see the number 666, which actually my neighbor who goes to church with us, their mailbox number is 666. So um, I think people my trash, so- can, <laughs> my trash can 
at the church yeah. parsonage where we lived, my trash can was serial number 00666. And I was like, really, guys, at the yeah. church house, <laughs> the trash can well, is... First of all, it's like if we pay attention to what Revelation 13 actually says, that number would be on a forehead or a, uh, a hand. It would not be on a trash can. Not or on a trash can. So, okay. so we were probably uh, safe then. So you're, you're probably safe there. But secondly, I just think we need to pay close attention to what Revelation 13 has to say about what the mark is doing. Um, so at the very end of Revelation, it's very specific in Revelation 13 that um, it says that the number, the number 666 is the number of a man. So, okay, it's the number of a man. Does and it... at the end of Revelation 13, um, he, he does this thing where he like, it, John does this sometimes where he'll say, like, lean in and listen really carefully. Like, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm trying to tell you what I'm really saying right now. And so in, in verse 18 of chapter 13, he says, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 666. Does so, it specifically use the word man as in male or the generic uh, I, term for person? I didn't look at that. Um, I, I didn't look at that ahead of time. And I, I don't have the Greek text sitting right here uh, open, but he's saying like, this is a person and everybody would have known what he was talking about because this was a really common practice in the first century that mm -hmm. again is one of those things that's lost to us. Um, so um, in the first century, uh, they had a, practice called gematria where the greek latin and hebrew letters of the alphabet were all assigned a numerical value and so you would take the k which is 20 and the e which is 15 and the v which is you know add up all the the, the numerical values of kevin's name and kevin's number is 684 yeah um and and you would do that for a lot of things and here's the most interesting thing kevin um so in the cities of Asia Minor, in Smyrna, I came across an article from a scholar um, who, who had gone around and looked at the graffiti, just kind of scratched on the wall, like we might see in a you know public bathroom. Like, I was going to say like a bathroom yeah. or something. Yeah, yeah. And, and a lot of it is really dirty. I mean, it is really inappropriate. But there are lots of graffiti from the first century from Asia Minor where someone will go up to a wall and say, I love the girl whose number is 545. That's sweet. Um, yeah, I, I, I actually saw one just this morning from Smyrna where uh, it said, I love the girl whose number is 1038. And that girl would have known who she was because she knew the numerical value. So people just know what to yeah. do. Like, this is what they do. So something that seems so crazy to us um, is not crazy for people in the first century. Yeah. It's something that they're very, very familiar. Okay. So with that said, what what name then? Who, who's, whose number is this? Yeah. Um, the, the most likely person, which when I say most likely, I, I'm almost saying like maybe people have proposed other options, but we're like dealing in the, you know, 90% somewhere in the 90s <laughs> of, of yeah. confidence here. Yeah. And I'll, I'll tell you why. But if you take the Greek name of Nero Caesar and you use Hebrew letters to spell it, it comes mm -hmm. out to 666. Um, now, there, yeah, there's this really interesting way we can kind of confirm that it's Nero Caesar. We can actually do that in a couple but, of ways. And then you said that's Hebrew letters, right? 
Yes. It's so like the, the Hebrew equivalent of these Latin letters. It's the Greek name Neron Caesar, but it's written in Hebrew letters. And those Hebrew letters equal 666. Now, here's the... Um, Here's the really interesting one. Anybody watching this, if you open up your Bibles, there'll probably be a note that says some manuscripts have 616. Mm -hmm. um, so some manuscripts have 666 and some manuscripts have 616. Well, Kevin, here we go. I'm ready. If you take, if you take the Latin name of Nero, mm -hmm. it equals 616. Oh, there we go. So, like either way that you slice this is talking about Nero. It's just people are counting. They know it's about Nero. They're just counting the numbers a little bit differently, whether you're using Hebrew letters or Latin letters, but it's Nero. So his name, so like everybody just knows about Nero, right? So we'll take Nero. His name in Latin is pronounced Nero. Yes. His name in Greek is said differently. It's Neron. Yes. With an N yes. on it. And yes. so d depending on what language system you use for numbers and letters or for letters that equal numerical values, you can come up with these two figures. Right. Right. Yeah. So let me let me now tell you why sort of beyond just even the numbering, why this is absolutely the case. Mm -hmm. So um, the, the beast that arises from the sea that has seven heads um, at the beginning of chapter 13 even though it has seven heads, there's one head that stands out in prominence in chapter 13. It's like, even though it has seven, it just keeps focusing in on this one head. Um, and what's interesting in verses three and in verses 12 and in verses 14, it keeps emphasizing this head was slain, but lives, or this head received a mortal wound and yet is still alive. This head was slain, but still lives. So what in the world, like a head that was cut, but is still alive, it, it just goes overboard with that imagery. Well, in the first century, as, as you know, Kevin, um, Nero was said to have committed suicide by slitting his own throat. But then there were rumors that persisted even to the end of the first century that like Elvis Presley, Nero was still alive. Yeah. And that actually Nero had gone to the East and he was partnering with the kings of the east, and he was planning to bring an army back to take back his role as emperor. And uh, there were people in in the later first century who actually rose up and claimed to be Nero raised, you know, N Nero alive. Yeah. Um, so this was it's called Nero Redivivus or Nero Redux, and you can look this up online. And so the imagery of this one head. Um, uh, the, the imagery of this one head seems to stand out. So later on in Revelation 17, it's going to specify that the seven heads are seven kings. So this is a ruler and he's just one of the kings. I think it's ironic later on that um, the way that this, this beast gets destroyed and his head gets destroyed is that um, while the beast burns the city with fire to destroy the city, then the beast and its heads gets thrown into the fire. And if you know your history from the first century, Nero was accused of burning the city. And then he had Christians burned and killed because he, you know, wanted to cast the suspicion on them and blame yeah. them for the fire. So it's just like when you recognize that Nero is 
the guy and the number and the name. And then you read Revelation 13, you're like, this is absolutely Nero. So what is it doing? What is the mark of the beast about then? Well, um, Revelation 13 specifically says the mark of the beast is for the purpose of buying and selling in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. People don't recognize that at the end of Revelation 13. But so what would that be about? Well, everywhere you went, even in the marketplace, in the temples, in the first century world, you had to worship the emperor. Like that was just a part of, of life, particularly in Asia Minor. Asia Minor outside of Rome was the strongest center of worship for the emperor in, in the entire empire. And so if you were a person who did not worship the emperor, then you do not get to participate in daily life, including what goes on in the marketplace. You're going to be shunned. You're going to be sort of cast out of those. Um, and so the message that John is giving in this, that whole section uh, of chapter 13 is don't worship the emperor. Don't receive his mark on you. Um, but that is going to cause you some temporary problems in this world like some temporary discomfort where you are going to be outcast and you are going to kind of face that, that social and commercial kind of punishment, that backlash for that, but hold on. And I think what people sometimes forget is that there is a counter to the mark of the beast and it's the mark of the lamb that in chapter seven and chapter 14, you want to have the mark of the lamb, not the mark of the beast. Um, And so I guess that's just a couple of things uh, about the, the mark of the beast. Well, in the worship of the emperor, too, correct me if I'm wrong, but sometimes it could be something as seemingly harmless, emphasis on seemingly, right? But something as seemingly harmless as say this prayer to the emperor or offer this incense you know, on an altar to the emperor. Those seem like fairly harmless things, but in, in a spiritually infused world and a spiritually sensitive worldview like what we see in revelation like what the earliest christians and and many jews had that was a big no-no even these little things like like you're you're involved in paganism if you do even these small little things right well by the way i would remind you that every i um we're going to talk more about this maybe in a minute but Mm -hmm. Everything in Revelation is responding to what is actually going on with the people in the pews. Mm-hmm. And what we see from the letters in the opening is that one of the things they're really tempted to do is to practice sexual immorality and eat meat sacrificed to idols. Mm-hmm. And in the first century world, you don't, you're not tempted towards an idolatry or a pagan temple where there's not also a statue of the emperor set up, especially in Asia Minor. So the emperor went along with the, uh, those kinds of, of practices in the first century world. And these churches are really being pulled in that direction. And what Revelation is trying to do is unmask and say, you think the emperors are so great. And you, you're saying all these things like, who can wage war against the emperor? And who has power? And look, at, we're going to bestow all these names like Lord and Savior and bringer of peace. We're going to throw all of these onto the emperor. And Revelation says, no, 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 no. The emperor is actually being empowered by Satan, the dragon. Don't go after him. Um, You're bestowing the wrong titles. You're blaspheming when you say those things about the the emperor. You need to come back to God and the lamb who are seated on the real throne, the seat of authority. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Um, well, that does bring me to the next thing. (laughs) That was a good segue. That brings me to the next thing that I wanted to ask about. Um, Is there anything? 
in Revelation today. If we've decoded who, you know, what the mark of the beast is, and if we've tackled maybe some of these uh, preconceptions that people have, is there is there anything for us in Revelation today, even though it was specifically targeting seven churches in the modern day country of Turkey? Sure. Um, okay, so I think that if if anybody knows anything from Revelation, they know about the seven letters to the seven churches because mm-hmm. that's almost like it feels like you're listening to Paul or something, you know. And so, oh, yeah, it, it really more, does. Mm-hmm. It seems more familiar. But what people haven't recognized is the import of those seven letters at the beginning of Revelation for everything that follows. Mm -hmm. So Revelation opens and it says, "Okay, here is this awesome vision of the risen Lord, the risen Jesus. And then now that risen Jesus has a message for the seven churches and then goes through those seven messages to those seven churches. And then the rest of Revelation from chapter four to twenty two. All of it is responding to the things that are going on in those churches. And I think when we read those seven letters, they are seven different churches with seven different circumstances, but there are some themes that begin to crop up in multiple letters. Mm -hmm. And so I think we can sort of have a sense of what's happening in Asia Minor and what the threats are to the churches there. So let me mention three uh, of the things that are happening on the ground. And let me say before I mention these, Anytime I've ever shared these with a church, shared what's happening there, um, and then you ask the question, like, is this relevant? Everybody says, of course it is. <laughs> there really is nothing new under the sun. So, so oh, here yeah. are the three. Yeah. The first is that these churches are experiencing conflict or difficulty with those outside the culture and with outside the church in the, the culture. And that, that, that difficulty ranges. So in Smyrna, they're being slandered. And some of them are being thrown into prison in Pergamon. They actually had a guy named Antipas be martyred. Mm -hmm. And in Philadelphia, they're having trouble with the synagogue. They're being slandered. And, you know, so you ask people, do you feel like that it is increasingly becoming hostile to live in this culture and be a Christian? Of course, that is one of the main messages that Revelation is written to speak into. Uh, So the second thing is that the Christians are being tempted to assimilate to their culture. And specifically, the two things that are mentioned are that they're being tempted to eat food sacrificed to idols, and they're being tempted to practice sexual immorality. And there's actually specific false teachers named. So there's this group called the Nicolaitans. Like, we don't know who they are, but they follow this dude named Nicholas, who's false teaching. In Ephesus, there's some people trying to be false apostles. Um, In Pergamon, there's Balaam and Balak these two false teachers that have Old Testament names that are leading people to idolatry. And Thyatira, there's Jezebel. So there's all these false teachers. But what they're trying to get them to do is say, don't really follow, you know, God and the Lamb and their instruction and way of life. Like, let's just kind of creep into culture and let's go hang out at the temple on Friday night and do what everybody else is doing. Do we have a problem with that today in Christianity? (laughs) Of course we do. And then the third thing would be, in the, in the midst of Asia Minor, these Christians seem to be um, complacent. And, and really, one of the driving things, explicit things that is driving their complacency and their faith is their wealth. Mm. Um, and so in Ephesus, he says, you've abandoned your first love. In Sardis, he says, you appear to be alive, but you're really dead. But the one that most people would know about would be Laodicea, mm-hmm. where you're neither hot nor cold, but you're lukewarm and spew you out of, you know, the the mouth. 
But what, what gets me about Laodicea is what he says. He says, you are saying, I am rich. I have need of nothing. I have Mm -hmm. prospered. Like they're just satisfied and complacent because of their wealth. And he says, actually, you are naked, you are destitute, you know, you are poor, like you are the complete opposite of what you think you are. And so do we have a problem today in our churches with complacency caused by the ease of our life and the comfort that we live in? It's like, whoa, you know, what I came on my toes, man. (laughs) (laughs) What I came to discover in a book that I thought had no relevancy is this Mm. may be the most relevant book for our moment. Mm. And, And that's why we really need to recover the message of revelation for this moment. It is incredibly relevant. Yeah. To help us, like the segue here, to help us recover the message for Revelation, what are some resources you'd recommend uh, for people who want to learn how to read Revelation a little bit better? Yeah. um, um, Well, for for church members, I always recommend everything Bible Project. So Mm -hmm. I love Mm -hmm. the Bible Project, and I think um, you could look up maybe their video on Revelation. It would it would help you. But if you're looking for a book for church members, I tend to recommend uh, Michael Gorman's Reading Revelation Responsibly. And there's three R's, so good preacher uh, points there. But (laughs) yeah. um, I tend to recommend that one now for um, reading Revelation responsibly. Yes. By yeah. Michael Gorman. Yes. Got it. Um, then I tend to describe myself as a Kesterite, a Craig Kesterite. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is my favorite book. Um, it's by Craig Kester and it's called Revelation and the End of All Things. And it is now in its second edition. I think maybe if there are some preachers that are watching this, uh, you know, um, maybe just a hair more dense than reading revelation responsibly, but yeah. this is kind of my go-to resource. And what it is, is uh, Craig Kester wrote the major volume in the anchor Bible series with Yale uh, on revelation. And it's like, you know, yeah. 2000 pages. That's a, stan- that's a dense academic standard commentary on the book of revelation, but uh, clearly the guy knows how to handle yeah, so he took all that and put it in this. So, <laughs> small, like, small volume, yeah. Yeah, so I, I really recommend that one and, and think that one's just yeah. fantastic. For the sake of people who are just listening and not watching, Kester is spelled K-O-E-S-T-E-R, not yes. pronounced Keister, right? That is something <laughs> else. Craig Kester, K-O-E-S-T-E-R. All right, yes. so we got Michael Gorman, we got Craig Kester and Bible Project. Anything you want to cap off the list with? I think so. I um, we didn't say to do this, but I I just feel like it would be good to leave with an encouraging word for people from Revelation whenever um, we're kind of ready to wrap up. I guess. Yeah. Um, I think the message of Revelation in that moment. So right after those letters to those churches, the first thing he launches into in Revelations four and five, in Revelation four and five is. Um, a scene of the heavenly throne and the worship that takes place around the heavenly throne and the lamb that's seated with God on the throne. And the reason that he does that is the message is you're going through some really hard stuff and you're complacent. And some of you are about to face some hardship and you're being, you're assimilating to your culture. And the most important thing you need to do is you need to put your eyes and your heart and your focus back on the throne where the true authority lies. Mm -hmm. And if 
you'll do that, then everything else will fall into place after that. And so I kind of cling to that message. And that's a message I share with our church a lot. Um, you know, we've just gone through this incredibly difficult year. And I think the, the message of revelation that would keep us some, from so much of our fighting about politics and our fighting about masks and our fighting about all these other things is when we take our eyes off the throne and we start looking around us and we start listening to voices that are not pointing us to the throne, we're going to get a lot of things wrong. Mm -hmm. And so I think the most important thing that we can do as revelation says in its opening visions is put our focus and eyes back around the throne. And if our worship on earth is an imitation or flows out of the worship that's happening in heaven, then that's what God really wants us to, to be doing. Yep. Garrett, man, I think that's a great place to stop. I really appreciate your time. <laughs> I really appreciate your time with us this morning. Um, I'm excited. I'm going to make sure to put links on uh, you know, for, for this material from uh, Gorman and Kester and Bible Project stuff. And uh, especially when the video comes up here, I'll have, uh, I'll have some key terms kind of flash up on the bottom because we, we threw some terminology at folks like Gamatria, Nero, Ritavivus, and stuff like that. But I'll try to make it as user-friendly as possible. Uh, Garrett, keep up the good work, man. I'm excited to, uh, to maybe get a bound copy of your published dissertation someday. I, I don't know if that's in the works right now. Mine is in the works. Also, it's uh, sitting in a folder on my computer desktop called <laughs> Writing Projects in Progress. <laughs> but anyway... Man, I really appreciate your time with us this morning. Thank you so much, and uh, blessings on all your uh, all your work uh, out there in Bartlett. Okay. Thanks. Same to you. Enjoyed Take it. Take care. See you.